0: And welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting-edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can Pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyouai y slash newsletter. My guest today is Radek Osmulski, a fully self-taught machine learning engineer. After getting tired of his corporate job, he taught himself how to program and started a new career as a Ruby on Rails developer. He then set out to learn machine learning. Since then, he's been a fast AI international fellow, become a Kaggle master, and is now an AI data engineer on the Earth Species Project. Radic, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me here. Great pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm a big fan of everything that you post on Twitter and of loving all, this, all of your articles as well. Thank you. Now, the first question that I always start off with all of our guests, and one that I'm particularly interested in hearing your side of the story for, is how you were first exposed to programming and computer science.
1: Programming and computer science. Okay. My entire life, I have been fascinated by programming, the concept of programming. So there are these people who know this arcane language, and they can tell their computers what to do. So that was my perception. And I had various runs in with programming, like small episodes. So when I was uh, 20 years old, I remember going to a bookstore. That's when people would get books in the olden days, uh, <laughs> paper copies from the shelf. I know it, it might sound like a bit of an abstract idea for many people these days, but that's that, that's how it was. And I picked up a, a programming book it was the ruby pickaxe it's a famous book it's a manual for ruby it has the syntax and uh, i started reading it uh, i thought that this is what development was all about this is what programmers did they would read books like that they would learn the syntax and uh, needless to say a couple of weeks into that i gave up and uh, then for many years I, I didn't do anything with programming whatsoever. When I was uh, 29, I had a job at a a large multinational corporation and uh, one project that uh, we were working on, we had to input around uh, 9,000 items into a computer using a web GUI and uh, so we uh, estimated the work that it would take around 100 contractor work hours because those were complex entries. And I thought, there must be a better way, right? So what a sane person would do is they would write some scripts or do whatever magic and feed it directly into the database. But corporations, such things are not simple. Like It was cheaper for us to hire a contractor than to work with our colleagues from UK, who then had to work with some external company to do this for us. Opened up a browser and I started typing. How do you press buttons on your computer with f- from a Ruby script? And uh, I hacked something together. It was uh, absolutely ridiculous because it was just a large Ruby script with just if conditions and maybe some for loop that was reading data from a spreadsheet and that would. I was using a library that is used for testing. I didn't even know what testing was back then, but it did what I wanted, which is it would press uh, buttons in my browser and uh, and it read the Excel spreadsheet and it would input the data into the front-end GUI. So that was the first uh, serious program that I wrote and one that I'm still very happy with because it delivered economic value, which is quite nice. And things just went from there. I was working at uh, really large companies, corporations, and it didn't feel like... Those were good places for human beings in general. So I was extremely bored and I could see my how my career could progress. It went very well up until that part and I could see where I could be in 10, 20 years from then. But this didn't seem that appealing to me. So I started doing MOOCs, learning things that I thought might be interesting just to entertain myself. And or to bring something interesting into my life. And I never thought that I would be a developer. How could that be possible for somebody without a background in writing in college or in computer science? But it turned out that fairly quickly, I picked up enough that it became a reality.
0: That's a great story. I love how you were for- forced into programming uh, at your job because it was something that you pretty much had to do and didn't want, you were trying to find a better solution. I think it's it was like a very practical way of solving the problem. And you can tell even in your writing now about how practically focused you are. And you don't give, like I saw your article on theory versus practice. And in some cases, it's you're always siding on the side of, of practice and trying to make that economic value instead of just having something just for the sake of it.
1: Yes. I talk about it with such conviction right now because it wasn't like that before. So at work, yes, I did something that was practical, but I would not consider this true learning. To me, learning was this process where you would sit down with a book and in two hours, you came out on the other end and you could talk about something abstract with understanding and you understood the theory. So learning math was not about maybe even so much solving problems or being able to, I don't know, solve some equation, but understanding why things work the the way they, they did, understanding the theory, understanding proofs. That was my perception of what learning was, but that ended up to be that didn't end up to work very well for me. It was a horrible time sink. And I don't think that this is how we learn. I don't think that this is how we should learn in any setting. And because I suffered through having these beliefs in my mind, now I very strongly you know, suggest taking another route.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've heard you say before that you always liked machine learning, even when you were first starting to get into development and mm-hmm actually failed to learn it the quote unquote learn it the first time was can you go into a little bit more of that was that because you took this like book focused mindset at the very start
1: yes very much so my first run-in with machine learning i didn't even know that machine learning existed up until the moment uh, when i took uh, andrew Ng's uh, mooc the machine learning the, the old one the one with the robot uh, like a uh, hat and or whatever they were holding the robot but uh i loved it Loved the explanations of the algorithms of the what what overfitting was i i loved uh, i especially loved the uh, couple of lectures on neural networks i thought that you know this was amazing and i did this mooc but you know I, i was Completely on my own. I didn't know what to do next even to learn this uh, a little bit more So I did the obvious thing which was to Google for answers and on the internet people said You have to learn calculus. You have to learn linear algebra. You have to learn uh, a little bit of probability statistics statistics will not hurt so I started learning that and uh, there are many lectures uh, from wonderful universities, MIT, Stanford. So I started doing this curriculum and then uh, it seemed that I need some real analysis to understand some of the proofs. On my commit to work, I would read the book by Walter Rudin, I think, yeah, if I recall correctly. And the, the other advice that I got was, okay, so we should really be Implementing machine learning papers on your computer. Fine, but I didn't even know that TensorFlow or PyTorch existed. So I would just pull up Ruby, pull up Python and Python. And this is, I actually have this available on my GitHub, where in NumPy, I implemented 10 of Jeffrey Hinton's papers. And so the initial papers, it was really fun to follow through how he published his learnings and understanding of what neural networks were doing. So it starts with just uh, trying to implement a network that could learn the or XOR function, but then CNNs and uh, Boltzmann machines and things like this. So it implement this trade in NumPy. But uh, I, I put in all this effort and... I felt that if I were to be presented with a real-life machine learning problem, I wouldn't even know where to start. And actually, I did this test. I went on to Kaggle and I was, uh, to say that I was intimidated by what people were doing there It would not even, uh, would be another statement. Uh, I would go into the forums and I didn't understand the language that people were talking. This This led me to believe that maybe this is not something that i can do uh, that i can learn for one reason or another i was very lucky to uh, find a post by rachel thomas on uh, hacker news so rachel thomas is part of the fastai research group who they they do a lot of cool things among other things they have these courses, right? On Online courses, MOOCs. I wouldn't call them MOOCs because they're a completely different approach. MOOCs, with MOOCs nearly no one graduates from MOOCs and there's 5%, 2% of people graduating from MOOCs and MOOCs are essentially classrooms taken online because the same people who teach at uh, colleges, at universities, they go on sabbaticals and they create an online class, but uh, this sort of learning lacks a lot of ingredients that are necessary to build a well-rounded person. Now the fast AI courses, they are different. And I I was very lucky to read that post by by Rachel Thomas. So I signed up for one of their offerings. It was uh, part two of the first course, first fast AI course. And so maybe I was uh, a little bit uh, unlucky in the sense that the well, luck doesn't have to play uh, a role here, but because it was the second part, people were already doing things that were hard for me. I had a hard time catching up, doing the first part on my own. But m- more than anything else, the things I was hearing in that course, they sounded like blasphemy. In the first uh, lecture or the second lecture, Jeremy Howard says something like, somebody ask Jeremy, I think, uh, something about derivatives. Do you need to know how to ca- calculate the derivative? And Jeremy says, no, you know, we, you have this thing, the computer, it can do this for you. I'm like, oh, this what is this? This cannot be right. So there was also this effect, I think, where I was observing what was going on, and I was listening, but I was not ready to go uh, all in on that. It, it, it sounded too are out there for me and the approach to learning was completely new so I gave up I I said this is it I gave this my two or three years of my life whatever I have a family I need to do stuff that can be useful with my career so for five months I and I looked at the, the logs from my VM for five months I did nothing in Python I did no machine learning I continued to learn but software development and things that were related to my job, Ruby on Reg development. But then five months later, I remember seeing another post. Uh, I don't remember by whom that was, maybe again by Rachel Thomas, where they were saying, they were announcing that there would be another offering of the fast AI course. And uh, this was uh, such an uh, emotional reaction. I just couldn't stop myself i said all right this is the last time this is the last time where i give this a try but this time i was so desperate Uh, i went in with the um, idea that i will do exactly what i'm being told to do no questioning i will like literally do everything that i'm told and that's what i did and that's what i did and it's
0: yeah, of course, as evidenced by your success in the field thereafter, you consulted for a few different startups and, of course, now being working on in a project that is mostly deep learning itself. So a very impressive journey. And again, it goes to I'm also a big fan of what Fastai is doing and especially around their community. And I saw that you posted a tweet earlier this week, I think, about the importance of community. So can you talk a little bit about the role that that played along? Uh, your learning journey?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And again, there was a big turn in how I approach community because I'm an introverted person. And when I was beginning to learn, I can I can lurk the forums, I can read stuff, but m- my biggest contributions were posting questions on Stack Overflow. That's as far as I would go. I would never imagine talking to people online that I didn't know in real life, that sounded like such a bizarre proposition. You know, I I grew up before there were online games, before there were forums. I'm not a native English speaker. This all sounded so bizarre, but now if there is one thing that is important to learning, that I believe is important to, to learning, that is the community. Absolutely. You get to see people who are just like yourself doing something and then showing you the results. You can look at their journey. So three months ago, they couldn't train a deep learning model, but now they can. And in another three months, they seem to do very well in a Kaggle competition. They end in the silver or golden medal range. People just like you and uh, the interactions they are super valuable was i was very active on the forums so, because that was the advice from Jeremy Howard for a while i think i was uh, probably the second most active person on the forums with jeremy being the most active person and i was asking questions jeremy was super kind to answer a lot of these questions and that was good because Now these answers are in the open and they were in the open back end. So back then as well, if you DM somebody that effort by the person who answers you the questions, maybe not wasted, but it's that it's not as useful as if the conversation is in the open. But I was also answering questions myself and that's super valuable to do because that requires you to reflect on the subject that you are answering the question on now i know that this goes by the generation effect this uh, what happens in that uh, instance and we don't learn by we don't learn through experience we learn through reflecting on experience i was helping others but through all of that i was solidifying my understanding i was also watching the things that i was getting wrong because if i said something that was not completely right others could step in and could contribute also there's this aspect of motivation when you're part of a community we evolved in tribes in small groups of people so being part of a community is very natural to us after all and the back and forth of helping each other of doing something for one another So this is, despite me being an introverted person, I still can see how this makes everything simpler. And the motivation comes from seeing the amazing things that others do and just starting to understand how they went from where they are to where they are right now. Because there's a lot of knowledge that you will not learn from the book. You can read probably most of the machine learning or deep learning books right now, but What will you learn about debugging? Debugging is such a super important skill and there are Jupyter notebooks. They come with a wonderful set of tools to do that. Absolutely unbelievable set of tools, but you will not get this from the book, but in a community, uh, this is the sort of knowledge that you will acquire. And this is what really makes you efficient and, and useful in a professional setting.
0: Yeah, I like how you really highlighted that point of being again being endlessly practical of focusing on the people who are oh, first of all getting that practical knowledge from people who are further ahead like you said in the community who have done those Cal competitions and done really well and and also I want to highlight the fact that you weren't that you weren't afraid to give back to the community Even though, of course, you were going to get some things wrong, but like you said, there were always people there to correct you and to build upon that to build upon that knowledge that you had already.
1: Yes, that that piece that was super important, and to me, it felt like initially it felt like doing something good, something nice, something valuable for other people. That was my motivation in answering the questions, but. The way I look at this right now is you get so much in return. It's It seems even a little bit selfish to be presenting this as an act of goodwill that you go out there and answer questions. For every answer that I gave, I feel that I got so much more in return. It's just, in the end, it's just a great learning experience.
0: And so I can kind of see where... Uh... Some of people in our audience might think, might hear all this and think, wow, that must have taken so much time. Like not everyone has that much time, (laughs) but during this time, like you were doing this all while, of course, you have a family and you were already working as a developer. That's right.
1: Yes. I had a full-time job as a Ruby on Rails developer and I had a family. When I was 29, my first child was about to be born and... That's when I started to do uh, books, when I started to learn. So I, I always had a full-time job for last 20 years, nearly 20 years now, because I didn't go to college. Well, I went to college, but I didn't graduate. I had very good grades, but I also had other ideas about life, what, what I thought that life might be. And uh, so twenty nearly 20 years of having a full-time job without even a week of being unemployed.
0: Wow, that's amazing that you were able to first of all, yeah, do all of that stuff uh on the side. I know that a lot of this material it's not uh it does take quite a long time. I think the fast AI course it's can sometimes be dropped out over a few months, uh doing it just on nights and weekends. So yeah,
1: it's that, uh that, that, that's that is true, but you know, what what I had going I didn't want to make it come across as uh, I was uh hustling or I was this is completely not what all this was about and not how I felt about it Uh, I was so excited and I wanted to prove to myself that I can learn this and if you are going at something for so long like we're talking years where I was trying to learn machine learning and you're not getting the results and suddenly you discover something that works This creates enormous motivation. And so I would find the time to learn during lunch breaks or on my commute to work. It's also that machine learning, the the subject matter is, I'm not even sure if it's challenging. I'm not sure if it's more challenging than other kind of development work or other things that people do in life. I'm not sure about that. But the process of learning machine learning, uh, of understanding how you can go about learning all these things in an efficient way, that definitely is challenging. And this was something that I received from Jeremy Howard, from being part of the fast AI community. So this is what enabled me to, to do what I did. And one other thing that I had going from back then I had a lot of energy and i was in good health that's an unfair advantage so to speak that i know that right now where i am in in life i know that i will have a much harder time to put so much effort into learning because just for various reasons i don't have that same Level of energy right now, so I'm actually doing various things to to have a comparable energy level because I want to work at this level of of output. But uh, I I wouldn't agree with saying that that this was definitely not through working extremely hard, or it was not through I don't know, not sleeping at night. And if there were times where I stayed up till one a.m., that was because I was young and stupid and I found this just so exciting that I couldn't stop. But this is not the approach.
0: Yeah, that's a really great caveat to make. And it's, like you said, it is such an exciting field sometimes, Uh, especially we've recently seen Dali come out and really blow everyone's mind about being able to compose images just like the way that you can compose text and the way that we've seen that uh, success in deep learning on images before. And it's really hard not to get excited about uh, when you're seeing some of those results and you just really are thrilled by like the potential for being able to learn how to do those kinds of things. So now looking, it's interesting that you highlighted that the hard part wasn't the material itself, but rather learning to digest all that material. What do you think were the major pivot points if you will, of what changed your thinking on those kinds of things. You'd mentioned that you took a lot of things from Jeremy Howard in the way that he approached teaching the material.
1: Yes, I learned nearly everything practical that I know about machine learning from Jeremy Howard. Like 99% of what I know that is practical about machine learning, I learned from Jeremy. He has been my greatest and and, uh, possibly only mentor. And by mentoring conversations that we had on past forums and what I heard him say in the lectures. So that was the key ingredient for me. Listening, having somebody who is extremely experienced, who is extremely knowledgeable, who knows how to do things. And I, I don't mean, so I often, when people talk to me, sometimes they they think that all I can do is because I don't have the formal background that all I can do is run somebody else's code or pull a bunch of libraries together and achieve some nice result. But if you look at and I don't obviously mean to compare myself to Jeremy Howard, but I want to speak to the skill set that you're learning in a Fast AI course. So Jeremy Howard, I think he has a background in philosophy, but he authored authored the own foot paper along with with Sebruder, right? So it was before we got all the NLP models that we are so excited about right now, but it was foundational and groundbreaking. You had, this was the moment where the field moved from using text embeddings to treating the entire model as, uh, as something that can be pre-trained and that that can capture something valuable that that we are after. So that was, uh, that was groundbreaking. And, where I was going with this thought is this goes even deeper. The misconceptions about the machine learning field, what is research? How is research done? The more I talk to people, the the people who are open-minded and Are not gatekeeping. How does, how does Jeffrey Hinton uh, see working on a new architecture or on a new concept? The math and the theory only comes later. It's mostly about having a great intuition, having a great understanding. And I saw this in his earlier papers that by him where he was exploring the field and some of the ideas he had about embeddings or people didn't know how to train didn't know how to train multi-networks with multiple layers. That was, that was a challenge. So whether we would train a network layer by layer using something like Boltzmann machines or whether we would turn out that we could come up with algorithmic tricks and things like better optimizers, like add momentum and stuff like that. But the point is that having this ability to move in code this can lead to not only very good results in applied machine learning, but also to, uh, I think this is how you do valuable research as well. And the history, I, I, I talked to that in my book where we have Ian Goodfellow who went out for drinks with his friends because they were celebrating something. And during the conversation, they were discussing how he could uh, believe generate images right and um, this ended up being an all-nighter for him where he went back home and he implemented the architecture it opened up a completely new field of research this uh, ability to tinker and again tinkering when i even say this word myself it seems talking about somebody playing on their computer but this is also valuable and important it's important to get good results, and it's also the approach that one can use for learning to grade effects. And this is the skill set you get from past AI courses.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to think about the evolution of the field. Like you said, it is so empirically driven in that, yeah, like, the, like you said before, like the, the tweet that I saw you post a few days ago, it was that the theories come out of the practice. It's not the other way around. And it is, like you said, that a big misconception that you have to build up to like all the theory before you can actually start to get some of those results. How would you... And I think that's something interesting that you talked about in one of the articles I saw that you wrote in KD Nuggets was uh, about in that tinkering process about being able to do as many iteration cycles as possible to be as efficient as possible to move as fast as possible because it is so empirically driven that you don't necessarily just want to be thinking for a really long time then all of a sudden you code up the best thing and it works it is much more of you set up your environment so you can be do trying things as fast and as fast as possible so can you talk a little bit about how you discovered that approach and how some of the advice that you have for being able to be more efficient
1: So I didn't discover much here. I documented the approach of Jeremy Howard. And maybe now I have a broad picture of the process because it's essentially just good software development practices. And of course, I understand the theory behind generalization. So I know what happens if you run your model a lot of times, what happens to your ability to generalized you can be overfitting the validation set right but but this is not and you can be overfitting through hyperparameters or whatnot or through your architecture choice but this whole process is not about that it's more about making sure that you are writing code that has some chance of being bug free and increasing the chance that this is the case so you start from a Baseline is super important. The baseline is something that takes in the input data and performs some simple transformation on it so that you get some answer and it can be as simple as running a random forest on your data or, I don't know, taking some means if it's a regression problem or whatnot. Because how often it is the case that you take a complex model some neural network architecture you apply it to your data and assuming the data is even slightly complex like it has unbalanced classes and it has multiple labels then how do you know if you're doing something that's valuable if you're moving in the right direction you cannot you need to have a solid starting point and then the idea is about uh, being paranoid with the code that you write. Not writing a lot of code, but rather taking an iterative approach, making small additions, running the entire pipeline, making sure that the pipeline can run quickly. You don't want to spend half an hour to have your pipeline do something interesting where you can evaluate if there are bugs in your code or not. So creating a smaller data set from, from your data is, is a good idea. And there are many tiny tricks like this that can increase the speed at which you're moving and essentially this process in this process, you are developing a solution to a machine learning problem, but you're also learning about your data, about the domain your model can tell you a lot of things about the data that you're working with and this is another thing that I learned in the fast ai course how do people clean their data everyone hates cleaning their data but we know that it's a garbage in garbage out situation in many cases and another i think i understand that machine learning models are robust to some mislabeled data or where the lab- data is mislabeled in random ways or whatnot, right? Not in a systemic way. I understand all that. But there is also this moment where you created the data set yourself, where you get some data to train your model on. How do you uh, figure out if there are mislabeled examples there instead of manually going through each uh, example, which is what would be the normal approach, the fast AI approach. So this indeed very fast. You first train a simple model on your data, and then you look at the examples that your model got most wrong. And there's a chance that there there is something interesting you can learn from these examples. Were they outliers? Or is it possibly that they were mislabeled? Maybe they are coming from a different distribution. Or you can look at the examples where your model is most confused, or the Predicted uh, probability of an item belonging to a given class is close to 50%. Uh, now, the more you train, the model becomes more confident in its predictions. But still, you can pull out such examples, and uh, this is another uh, valuable source of insight. So the, the the process is about synergy between you, the code you're writing, and what your model is telling you, and uh, this can This ensures that the solution that you are arriving at will be, in some sense, better than it could have been otherwise, and also that you are making relatively quick progress. If if somebody is able to look at the data and come up with with a machine learning solution uh, to a complex problem in one sitting, just writing code line by line the more power to them, but I have not met such a person yet.
0: It's a good distinction you made at the very start of the iteration is on the, not just the model, because of course it does reduce that capacity to generalize, but in the it's in those micro feedback loops across the entire cycle of you might have some idea of what the data looks like, but you don't actually know until you're able to, like you say, take out that subset and really look at it and really make the assumptions that you have about your data about what the domain, and make those assumptions explicit, so that if they're ever broken, you're not just left going line by line and trying to figure out where things went wrong. You actually can know that an assumption was broken, and that's especially important in ML because we otherwise might have completely silent failures. Mm-hmm. And it it seems like a bit weird when you first get into the field of someone saying, "Oh, you need to make your code fail more," mm-hmm. but that actually turns out to be one of, like you say, one of the Best ways to make the, the entire process more efficient.
1: Absolutely agreed. And uh, this is, yeah, from a software development perspective, machine learning is a very challenging and unique field, but you know it makes it also fun.
0: <laughs> exactly. Now I'm sure that there is a, or I know that there's a lot of people listening who are who want to take the same path as you. Maybe they have, they can really resonate with your story of trying to learn the theory, reading real analysis on your commute to work and uh, not really getting anywhere there, becoming bored of that. I know that was something that, that I did as well at the very start. But for, and now of course we have so many different resources out there for learning machine learning. It's not just that one Andrew Ng course. With the robot, we have tons of different resources. So for someone who is, Maybe listening now. Maybe they are a developer like you were. Maybe they are uh, a student who is looking to get into machine learning. How would you recommend that they get started? And I'm assuming that it includes Fast AI.
1: (laughs) Yes, I would say so. Yes, that's probably the best path. But I like your uh, description of what the situation looks like for a newcomer to the field. There is just so much information out there, and People go on YouTube. the most popular videos are of people some lines of code and getting extremely good results. Uh, the code is doing something it's like fireworks and then there you go on to Twitter and you either get people who give you lists of machine learning libraries or or who get to listen to researchers who discuss things, I don't know, positional encoding uh, in transformers, right? Okay, how is this useful? How do newcomers navigate this field? And then MOOCs, there are MOOCs as well, but we know that they are not uh, giving you what you need to be effective. Like you need to have some level of maturity and uh, some level of understanding of how you can learn by working on your own projects to make MOOCs effective, which many people don't have this I feel so going back to your question and very much emphasize and being very empathetic to the experience of people who are new to the field I would say that fast AI courses are definitely the way to go and uh, silencing out all the maybe exciting things that are happening on social media and really sticking to hacking on projects doing Kaggle competitions and first and foremost understanding learning a little bit about how we learn doing what the fast AI courses suggest which is you take a lecture notebook you go through it cell by cell you understand what, what is happening in the notebook and then you put this notebook away And you try to reproduce the same results and no one is able to not look at the previous notebook right but maybe you will look at it a couple of times and the next time when you work on this you will take a look maybe only once and then you take the same approach but you apply it to completely new data and then once you once you do this and once you do this with a couple of faster lectures you are able to uh, do creative things on new data sets. Essentially, we have a strong basis to build on. This is the way, how we learn. And uh, now I can take this approach and apply it to domains that uh, you know are not maybe covered by fast AI courses. There is a chance that I will be learning about vitro uh, lightning i know exactly how to approach it right now or you know, i'm right now re- reading a book about strategy because i feel that i'm very good in executing on things i'm a very good uh, tactician but i'm very poor when it comes to being strategic about what i do in life and how i spend my time but i can use the, the approach to learning i learned in faster courses and maybe some reading that I did on learning outside of these courses, but essentially it's the same methodology. So whatever you do, you should, I feel, try to experience this kind of learning, how powerful it can be. And then suddenly the superficial things on the internet, they become less interesting and just don't want to maybe invest your time into activities that you, you, you come out on the other end and there's not much to show for.
0: That approach of taking a, a notebook that someone has already written and is something that works, I think it, it is so important, like you highlighted, to reproduce it from scratch. Mm-hmm. It's, it and it's not something that I've actually, I don't think I've, seen it in uh, many different places. So it's a really good thing that you bring it up where you're presented these notebooks from academics, from people who are doing the theory work behind this research. And they say, here's a notebook, just look at it and uh, behold. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas your approach is much more, let's actually, I want to know that I understand what is going on here by being able to do it in as few references to the original as possible so i think that's su- such a powerful approach and one that i also used very much so when i was learning
1: i don't know who said this but you don't know something until you make it and uh, even if you're a phd grad and you're learning all this theory i would assume student papers is a super valuable skills a skill in its own right absolutely but maybe a phd grad now these are good guys they know what they're doing but Let's take a person on the internet somewhere like I was, where I was reading papers on my own. And I would have uh, this feeling that I'm understanding something, but I cannot be really sure whether this is just a mirage or if it is a true, genuine understanding. It is only when I put this to a test in a real-life scenario that I can trust my, my understanding. And another aspect here, how much theory there is to learn in life, even with mathematics, how much theory there is to learn. And how do you know what theory you should be learning? How do you not end up like I ended up reading books on set theory and how Cantor made the contributions that he did? And it was super fascinating. And I learned a lot about how science is made and how people think. That was exciting. But if you are not rooted in practice, how do you know what you should be learning? You can spend the next uh, three years of your life just uh, reading papers on NLP, and okay, fine, you will know something. But Is this the best way to learn? Is this how we can make fastest progress? I don't think so. I think you need to have objective feedback. And that's the sort of feedback that you can only get when you interact with uh, code, with models, with the world around you.
0: Yeah, I really love that point of needing to do things, get feedback in the real world to drive what you're actually learning. Because like you said, the theory rabbit hole never ends. Yes. and in retrospect like i've i def i also i definitely use some of the theory i don't know the hoeffding bound is particularly useful in a lot of situations especially when you're doing trying to figure out like how big your test it needs to be but for every one hoeffding bound there's at least 10 other theorems that yes. i have yes. absolutely no use for
1: and this hoeffding bound it's uh, the concept is uh, super valuable right to understand how why you can generalize and uh, I love this. This is perfectly fine. And I was super happy to read about it, to understand the formula, what it was doing, why. It's super awesome. But there's another aspect here, which is that I learned it before I was able to do much with code. Was it the right time to learn it then where I could have read a very good blog post against by Rachel Thomas on the train by test split, where she gives uh, practical examples of essentially the same thing. I don't know, on that one, I don't know what the answer is because I still really love theory and I love to understand things, but I'm not sure that this was the fastest way to learn. And I'm also not sure if everyone who's doing machine learning, if they need to understand this, especially that you can understand the having been, been bound and the VC dimensions or whatever, but when it comes to practice, you can still have a very hard time applying even one-tenth of this understanding. I feel so. So th- there are still curveballs that, and Kaggle is great for learning about leaks between data, between your splits and, and things like this, that just understanding the theory will I'm not sure that gives you, but sorry, uh, sorry for going off on this tangent. I was just excited that you mentioned something that I thought that was also very cool, like old habits die hard. Yes, I know that practice is what I should be doing, but theory and understanding how things work, yeah, I still uh, have a lot of love for that.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like you said before, it's the, the point of bringing up the band in particular is that it is something that if you, you also found it in Rachel Thomas's blog post on doing those different training test and test splits. And so by focusing on that practical minded focus, you would have eventually learned and come across that same thing, even yes. not coming at it from a theory perspective, even though it is classified as like theoretical learning theory.
1: Charlie, I I think you said it better than how I expressed this, yes. And most likely my understanding would be more complete had I arrived at it through experience than through studying theory. And I would also be able to move much faster. And I think that moving fast is what makes life fun. I'm very aware that we have some amount of years in our life. This understanding kicks in maybe as you get a little bit older or when you start, you wake up in the morning and you're not feeling as well as you'd like to feel, stuff like that. But moving (laughs) with with speed genuinely makes life. It's a new dimension of life that I appreciate. And if I can get this through practice, then practicing is what I need to do and what I need to figure out ways of, of doing. So it's how I manage my time, what I focus on removing distractions and fighting my own inclination to reading stuff because i just find it so fascinating well i need to make sure that practice comes first
0: yeah yeah that's a great message that i think a lot of people will be able to get value from and speaking of moving fast and providing value for people you are right currently writing a book so tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that it's uh, not an easy endeavor
1: it's not an easy endeavor and as everything in my life. It's not something I thought out uh, very well up front. Like, I, I, don't get me wrong. Like, I I think that this is on a personal level amazing that I'm working on this, but I definitely didn't understand what was involved in writing the book when I was setting out to do it. Now, the motivation behind it is extremely complex and has many aspects to it. I wanted to have something that would be bring closure to these eight years of my life as as simple as that and while setting out to write the book i also thought that this would be something that would keep me connected to the fast community and something that would be really about me giving back to a large extent as well but again through writing this book i'm learning so much uh, myself and this is such a Valuable and rewarding experience. I even I feel bad bringing this uh, idea up right now. It's also that I fundamentally believe that this experience of going uh, from somebody who was doing everything wrong, essentially, to somebody who now knows how to do certain things and what I learned in the process that that this is valuable. So I want to do my best to document that these learnings and last last part, but not least. I want this experience of uh, building something, creating something and then uh, charging money for that. So this is, I think what might be called entrepreneurship, right? And uh, I just want this experience. I don't know what will happen. It is scary to me. It is challenging, but I don't mean it in a sense that. It lives, it lives on the plane where I have my hobbies and like I was learning machine learning as a hobby and doing these sort of things. So now I want to experience what I read about, what other people have been talking about. I want to see how it feels. So a very, I'm not sure how, how to phrase it, but I'm hoping that I will be able to um, give something to people that they will find valuable and that I will I I have not been hoping for that, but it turns out that I'm also getting a lot of personal value in return. So it feels like a very good scenario and uncharted waters, completely uncharted waters for me because I, my entire life, I have never sold anything. So we'll see how that goes. Most likely it is that nothing will happen, like it's usually on the internet. You do something and you're welcomed by silence. But even if that is the outcome, then I'm still super happy with, uh, with the experience. And just uh, documenting the, the thoughts, documenting what I learned, I continue to learn. So this is just crazy. This is crazy. And no one told me about this before I took the fast AI course. Right now, I know that some of this is called learning in public, right? There's this name to it. It's just, uh, just wonderful.
0: Yeah. I love that uh, you, uh, you highlighted that you are exactly still continuing to learn just by, by creating something that you hope will have value for others. And it's something that, speaking of the learning in public movement, it's a lot of people, they think that they don't have, they see themselves as an imposter. They don't have something to give. And it goes back to what you were talking about with getting involved in the community and helping others there. Like you're, you can always help someone who is, who is a few steps Uh, behind you so to speak
1: yes and you are the best person in the entire world to help somebody who is just a few steps behind you there are blog posts that i would not be able to write right now that i was able to learn to write a couple of years ago Uh, for example introduction to pytorch i read i wrote it from the perspective of somebody who just uh, picked up the skills so i found something that was hard I learned how to do it. And then I explained it in a language that Radek from three months ago would understand. And that's the same idea with my book. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how good this is from a book writing perspective, but I'm writing the book for Radek from eight years ago, because I don't want, or I'm not sure if there is a chance that the book will be helpful to somebody, hopefully, but I know that if I were to be given the book that I'm working on eight years ago, it would have changed my life for the better. So maybe, maybe somebody will find it useful, or if not, I will still be happy that a book like this exists.
0: And so it is called meta learning, right? And uh... Uh, the
1: name is something that I'm still working on. Maybe I will remove the meta learning part to make it shorter, powerful, or, (laughs) yeah, it's still a work in progress, but we we can go by the name that was there, yeah.
0: And if you want to, what would be the, we talked about a lot of things that I'm sure you're going to cover in the book itself. What would be some of the things that maybe we haven't covered that uh, you might have, might be writing about, planning on writing about? Yeah,
1: there are things like that. For instance, how do you get a job uh, if you don't have a formal background? And this is a hard question. This is a a very tricky area to move in because the answers that you can give can have life-impacting consequences for other people. And it's also very hard to give a good answer given how people's backgrounds very, So, so I, I think what, what works really well is uh, telling your story if you don't have a formal background and telling your story how it uh, happened for you. This is the safe path. So on the Fast AI forums, I started a thread where people can go and can share their experiences. I think this is uh, fairly valuable or the frustrations that they have. But one thing that I speak to in the book and what was not obvious to me uh, is that with every piece of work that you share, you are building your credibility. More people are hearing about you and also you're explaining something. So naturally your credibility goes up. And this is a very powerful thing because just through being active on the FastAI forums. I got many job offers. Didn't switch to machine learning with the first job offer that I got. The the ones software developers if you work full time you have a re- relatively good career wherever you live. And I was not hard pressed to leave it and I was we're, we're waiting for really good opportunities uh, to manifest should they manifest. But just through the forums, uh, a couple of people reached out to me. Then people started reaching out to me because of, or one one person at least through the Kaggle competition. So there is, uh, there is value in um, putting your name out there and, and sharing your work. And the effect is stronger than I assumed. It sounds bizarre that this is how the life works now, but I keep running into people who are having these freak accidents. They post something online, they keep doing it for a year or two, and suddenly they wake up in a completely different place professionally. So it's not just my experience. What else? I speak to the tools that you use, why it's important to, for example, learn your editor really well so that you can start to enter the state of flow as you are working on things. That's also another aspect why being able to train quickly is valuable, because you don't want to be pulled out from this state of working on things and this direct feedback. And there are other things, I believe, that we haven't
0: Touched on, but we don't want to give uh, away too many. No, no,
1: like that's also another thing. Like I'm, I'm not trying to keep this a secret at all. I just want to share as much as I can with every opportunity that I can, and I, I want to also get better with communicating. So that's why I'm super grateful that you invited me on this podcast. It's a great experience.
0: Yeah, it's great to have someone on the podcast who is able to share all that experience, especially the experience that is highly relevant for a lot of the people that that I know listen. And so speaking of, you're talking about getting a job from a non-traditional background, you are now working with the Earth Species Project. And I had never heard of this before. I, I was looking you up and this sounds really, really fascinating. So can you give us a bit of a background on one, what it is and how you got involved?
1: So this is a job of my dreams Yeah, this is a job of my dreams. I love the atmosphere at work. I I love the team, the people I'm working with and I love what we are working on. So we are working on decoding non-human communication and building tools to empower bioacousticians. Yeah, I should probably elaborate on what that is. Okay. Let's thank you for a second. You know how progress is. Before, by the time we put the, a man on the moon, by that time we still didn't realize that animals in the ocean that they communicate. We thought that there was silence there, and it's how for the longest time people believed that humans have a different biology than animals, and it was not scientific, it was not showed in a scientific way, but it was rather a cultural side effect that we had these beliefs. So in the 1960s, Roger Payne and his wife, they re- released Songs of the Waves. It's a CD that was sold in, I think, around 10 million copies. It, was, it became extremely popular. And just this cultural phenomena we suddenly started being interested in these fabulous and fascinating creatures. And this led to whaling being banned in the 80s, I believe. So I think that making progress on bioacoustics on understanding non-human communication, this is the hope that we will change our relationship with the animal world through the research and through the findings. And There is real science that goes behind what we are attempting to do. And it's not just us, but there are by now probably hundreds of people doing related work at various places. And with the specific approach that we initially are hoping to explore. So this is something that many people in the machine learning field are not aware of. But if you train embeddings on text and you train embeddings from various languages, you can then translate between the languages without the Rosetta Stone. You align the embeddings. And in the process, you can go from word to word in one language to another language. And this is, to me, this is fascinating. I didn't know this. But what does it tell me? It first tells me that we as humans are probably much more alike than we would like to admit often. And uh, secondly, how is this possible that there is so much structure? How is this possible that there is so much structure in a language where you can align languages on top of each other like that? And I ran the code myself, even with a limited dictionary, with limited trend data, and it works. So if we can create embeddings from bioacoustic data, from animal communication. If we can then start, and obviously there are many problems that need to be solved, like for example, unsupervised segmentation, because we don't know what uh, constitutes a chunk of animal speech. How do we go to segments that are uh, meaningful? But there's uh, interesting work in unsupervised segmentation happening as well. Some Some of the papers are extremely creative, extremely fascinating. So if you can start training embeddings on bioacoustic data, you suddenly get access to fabulous building blocks. And of course, it would be extremely interesting to start aligning these embeddings between species, maybe even going as far as human languages. Whales, they have extremely complex social structures. They Spent 65 million years in the water. They have these enormous brains. There, there is a wealth of complexity in their communication. And then, not only to, not only to attempt understanding what is being discussed there, but even the more basic work. We have collaborators from SETI. These guys who are looking at, for extraterrestrial life, and they are developing very interesting. Information theory tools, the cutting edge of information theory, where you look at a communication and you can start saying interesting things uh, about the properties that the communication has. Can this be a language? And uh, the work we are doing with embeddings and with uh, creating these bioacoustic tools, the outputs can feed into these models because uh, you cannot just go from a stream of audio to applying these information theory tools information theoretic tools this is extremely fascinating and some of the things I'm, I'm, I'm learning along the way about animals are mind-blowing you know what we already know where there is really hardcore science uh, behind the findings and uh, how different it is from the perception in the media or from average folks where uh, animals they don't have emotions they don't have they don't have the, the richness that we, the sense of personality that we associate with human beings. Well, I think that, uh, I'm hoping that that we are living in a pivotal moment again, how we assume that our biology, how we accepted that our biology doesn't differ so much. It, it is now a, a scientific fact. I think that uh, progressively we will start seeing that the animal kingdom and the human kingdom, that they are much closer together. And doing whatever we can do to make this reality happen, to accelerate the future. This is what we, what we need. Uh, this ties in with the biggest challenge of current times, the global warming and how people approach this, how people approach the loss of biodiversity. And I'm a very down to earth guy. I don't, uh, I, I only, even when I talk about AI and, and many people give me this as, as a feedback, I, I don't, uh, Blow things out from 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 proportions, or I think I have a fairly good understanding of what AI can do and what it cannot do. And, and some of the conversations happening online, they are just they're pure hype. But here we have something where the tools that are on the cutting edge, papers from 2017, 2018, 19, are if we could start applying it to the animal vocalization data sets, I think that uh, this can be interesting and viable.
0: Yeah, it's just one of those things that you read about, and especially that initial research finding that you can align the embedding spaces. It, in some ways, it makes sense why you can do it, but it's still incredibly cool to see that in action and to have it be validated as something that, as another thing that machine learning is able to do. And even though, like you said, there there does seem to be tons of hype in general around the field. But again, like you said, this is uh, this is actually possible to do and it's quite amazing what might come out of it. This is the magic, Charlie, you know? This is the magic right here. It's not uh, having uh,
1: animated dolls with uh, facial expressions that are portrayed as AI where humankind has been doing this for ages. If you trace back all the way to Charles Babbage, people were also into these animated moving uh, those whatever creatures which is just so superficial and so fraudulent to be portraying this. And then you have something that cool as aligning these uh, embedding clouds, which is mind-blowing. But unfortunately, this is not what is being communicated to people. We are online, we are going for those cheap tricks. And I hope that this other side of the story also gets heard, you know.
0: I really want to dig in, oh, like a little bit more into the into this work because mm-hmm. what does, how much data do we have on the animal data? You mentioned that we are potentially starting with the whale bioacoustic data. Like how much of it is out there? What's the current state of the project?
1: There's a lot of data, and we will have much more data in coming years. Like we will have, there are projects that are in the works right now where we will have exponentially more data. And we, as a field, we are understanding more what data we need to collect and how we can collect the data because it's, um, it's not that these animals, they live underwater, you cannot just uh, put a mic in front of them. That's not that simple. And so, so there are these devices that be attached to a whale and you is stuck to the whale, not, not hurting the whale in, in any sense, that this was the whale for 24 hours or for 36 hours. And then you follow the whale to pick it up and there, there will be more data. But even with the data that we have, it's not as simple because maybe the data lives on somebody's Google Drive or somewhere like that. So a big part of the work is taking the data and making it available to researchers. And that's where my role is gravitating towards, where this year I will be working on building up the ESP library. So we want to help our partners to, first of all, understand uh, what data could be very valuable, to share the insights into maybe how the data can be organized but we also want to do the work on our end which is pre-processed data sets clean data sets package them in a fashion where ideally you will be able to go onto your computer issue a command and the data will be pulled onto your machine and also through that enable other people to do the necessary research work because we have a very good understanding that uh, the breakthroughs will not come from a small group of people uh, that you can pinpoint and say yeah these guys are doing the right work and the breakthrough will originate there no it has to be an effort where many people are involved uh, with various backgrounds not only machine learning of course bioacoustics linguists uh, biology marine biology through, through sharing this data, while also doing research work, we hope to contribute to the field as much as we can.
0: Wow, it's, again, just uh, hearing about this is so cool, because you just, you always saw animals on TV, like talking, you're like, oh, maybe that would be possible, like way in the future. And I, I know that's not the goal of the project itself. But uh, but to think that uh, something like that could come to life is very interesting to to think about and also has obviously great benefits for the intermediate steps before that of being able to increase conservation because people will be like you said more empathetic towards the animals if they know that there actually is some thought behind quote-unquote thought before behind uh, some of those their communication signals
1: yes yes and uh, learning about the social structures and the cultures that these animals create so for instance very large ships and their engines their turbines they have been designed they have not been optimized for not emitting sound. they were designed in the 60s 70s where no one cared about uh, things like how much uh, how fuel efficient they were or how much sound they emit but now we, we are seeing the impact of acoustic pollution with the what it's called when a submarine does the collocation? It's called... Ah, uh, the sonar? The sonar, yes, the sonar. Then we have strandings, we have animals bleeding out from their brain, and this is still not fully understood. But the point is that even with a little bit of change in our mindset, those turbines on, on these ships, we have the tools right now to design them to be much less uh, polluting and... Much and require to be more energy efficient, but it, it requires, uh, uh, like you said, changing how we see this uh, animal world. And yeah, I'm hoping that uh, I'm not hoping, but I'm fairly convinced that we will be deliver we will be able to deliver with time on the um, main mission, which is decoding non human communication. But, but like you said, if along the way people can. Change a little bit how we think. I think that would be wonderful, and there would would be much less suffering, both on our side and on the side of the animals.
0: That's amazing. How would I know that your they have a GitHub repo mm-hmm. and that it is building in public in a lot of ways? How would it? Uh, how would people be able to start to look more into this sort of research and possibly uh, contribute to it?
1: So I would start with listening to a an interview a, a podcast i think it might have been on npr i'm not sure but m- maybe you uh, can somehow link link to, to it it was yeah i'll find it and add a link below it was uh, two hard beats a minute or something like that where there's the story of the founders really uh, amazing guys as and brit amazing people, how they came together as, uh, as friends and how, they, how this idea came to life. And so that's, uh, that's where you can learn a lot about the philosophy of, of ESP. And as for um, checking in on what we are working on, GitHub is the best place. And you can start chatting with us and there will be a person who will respond. We have our website also which looks uh, airspecies.org, which looks at the science uh, a little bit uh, about uh, what we are doing and uh, yeah i would i would say for technical folks github might be the the place to look
0: amazing and i definitely encourage everyone to check out some of that research yeah. even just to find out more about the translation without the Rosetta Stone. It's a uh, yes. very interesting work. Uh, and if people wanted to learn more about you, where would be the best place for them to do so? Twitter,
1: probably. I'm Radegosmuski. Written together on Twitter, and you can also check out my website.
0: Great, and your you provide so much value on Twitter. You're able to condense a lot of these ideas into, of course, those tweet size, tweet size forms. And the book, link to the book is linked in your Twitter account. I think it's, the, it's the, been yes. the pinned tweet for a while. Yes. Do you have any sense of when that will be released for people to be able to check out?
1: The book itself. I think I have the book ready, the core of the book. And I over last month, I have written a lot of words, really a lot of words. But I think I'm just trying to make the book longer. And this is not the content that should be there. I think there is value in brevity, actually. It might be closer to being finished than I assumed. This is something I have to think on over the next couple of days, and I will be reaching out to people for feedback as well, what they tell me. So it's hard to say. I set the tentative date for sometime in June, but it might be much sooner.
0: Great, great. We're all looking forward to it. And I've also seen that very recently you launched a newsletter.
1: Yes, this is. So this is uh, my hobby. This is what I find fun. I, I find experimenting with such things fun, and, and also learning about things. These are. This is what I do in my free time, so to speak. I have a full time job that I'm super excited about, and that I want to do the absolutely best I can at. And I have my kids, but. For fun, I want to continue to grow as a person I want to experience new things, so the newsletter is just one such initiative, and I'm hoping to start blogging more, maybe, especially once i once I publish the book, so we'll see and it's extremely interesting because I used to be much more scared about Tweeting, about blogging, about such a thing as a newsletter, like how could I ask a person to read my words that I will be sending to their mailbox? That sounds like such an abstract idea, but with time, and it's very strange, that's what I'm saying, but you become maybe a little bit more confident and suddenly these things don't seem out of reach anymore. So I want to capitalize on that, and I want to just uh, experience things and, and learn from them. And Now I know that I will learn much more about newsletters if I have my own newsletter than if I were to read about other people having their newsletters, which obviously is valuable. And this is what I would do in the past, but now I'm attempting to have a newsletter myself.
0: Great. And uh, people, of course, can, that's on Revue, which was recently bought by Twitter. So hopefully there'll be some sort of integration with their Twitter account. So people will be able to find that on the Twitter profile along with everything else.
1: Yes. And, and if they want to find it via a URL, then it's, uh, what is it? I think uh, maybe it's uh, com, something like that.
0: <laughs> I'll link it below. So to finish out I always ask the same few questions of all of our guests. And the first one is what do you do for fun outside of work? I guess you've just uh, yeah. said that this is what you do for fun. I do this. <laughs>
1: this is my kind of fun. Exactly. I think about these things. I'm just uh, time time is the most valuable asset that we have, right? It's uh, becoming more true to me and I love reading books. I love doing stuff I, I could be spending my uh, free time in other ways that I would find probably very appealing as well, but I don't want to stop learning.
0: Great. Now, the second question speaking of learning, what book or books do you most often recommend to others?
1: I would probably start with A Guide to Good Life. It is a Mm -hmm. modern take on stoic philosophy great introduction it is to me it, it is extremely valuable because our world is crazy maybe it has always been crazy and you need to disconnect and unplug a little bit from from that and put your life in perspective and This is very hard and I'm not saying that I'm any good at this, but even if you make a minor improvement on not being attached so much to your results or, you know, how much money you have or things like this, I I think your, your quality of life will improve tremendously. You will be a much happier person. And also you will be able to, to do much more. Now, the best fiction book that I probably ever read is The Origin of Wealth. And this is absolutely fascinating. The Origin of Wealth.
0: I don't think I've heard of that.
1: This book, like right now, you buy a book and it's just one idea that is repeated over and over again. This book, I'm not sure how many pages it has, but it is so dense in ideas. And it is essentially the field of economics is deconstructed where you see why it is what it is right now, what breakthroughs uh, uh, led to economics being what it is right now, and uh, how maybe it's not uh, optimal in terms of the science behind economic theory. So we have physicists uh, that chime in, and then you have this second part of the book, which is, and to see the entire field of uh, study to be presented like that, to be broken into little pieces. This is a fascinating journey. And uh, the second part of the book is uh, what uh, economics can be if you use modern technology, if you apply genetic algorithms to thinking about our economic reality. This is probably the best nonfiction book that uh, I have ever read. And Make Time, it's another great book, Make Time. This is, this is the book for improving your, well, productivity, it sounds like you're a machine. So I wouldn't say your productivity, but your ability to work on projects that are important to you. I would put it this way. And uh, last but not least, just again, bring myself out of my comfort zone. I really, uh, I didn't know what mindfulness was uh, up until not too long ago. But uh, there is this uh, really nice book, uh, "You Are Here," by a Buddhist monk, and uh, where stoicism can tell you how to reason about life and how to look at things in perspective. Mindfulness, even if you practice it to a limited extent, mindfulness gives you the tools to maybe get off the emotional roller coaster even if for a very few short moments, and maybe spend them a minute or two, like really with your kids being there. And 99% of the time, I'm a complete lunatic, I get excited about stuff and can't stop thinking about, I don't know, the next machine learning paper I will read or, but so I don't want to come across as somebody who knows what they're doing in life. but. Uh, even tiny changes, they can make you more effective and they can allow you to find the time for what matters. Not in the moment, like the 24-hour news cycle or whatnot, but what matters when you look at life in a broader perspective.
0: hmm yeah, and I will definitely second the recommendation for for mindfulness and all of. That's a bu- book by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, right? Yes,
1: yes, exactly. I, I just don't know how to say the last name.
0: Yeah. But yeah, yeah, and but it's all of his writing is extremely beautiful, and it really is a life changing practice. You might think that if uh, you are actually present, and then you realize once you have started the practice of meditation that you like you said, are thinking more than you than you think.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly what you said.
0: So the next question is, what advice would you give to someone just starting out in the field, maybe uh, different than what we've already covered?
1: Do they know how to program or do they not know how to program?
0: Uh, yeah, most people, I think, listening do know how to program. Then
1: do the fast AI courses. <laughs> And give yourself an opportunity to really experience this way of learning. Give it a couple of weeks and do the exercises.
0: Next, what have you recently changed your mind on?
1: What have I recently? Yes, okay. Proximity objectives. So this is the idea that you cannot learn to walk before. You cannot learn to run because before you learn to walk. But we say it like this, but we never, at least I, I never really grok that this is a deep and fundamental truth in the book, uh, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, a fabulous book, extremely written book by a very experienced person. He gives uh, an example of a helicopter pilot. So, as a helicopter pilot, the first thing you have to learn is how to uh, fly the helicopter. It's extremely involved. You have all these controls and pedals. So you have to first learn that. Only when you learn that can you move on to things like flying at night. Like You cannot possibly learn to fly at night before you learn that, uh, earlier, complete that earlier stage. And then you move on to flying information. This is another skill complex skill Uh, and as you are progressing up the stack the previous skills they become your second nature they become automatic and then maybe the the last step step is uh, flying in combat or doing things like being able to land with your engine off which is uh, extremely time sensitive like you have apparently from what is said in the book we have a second where you have to perform some set of actions or you are gone And this progression, this understanding is uh, super valuable because at different steps, you learn different things. You are able to learn some things because you've already learned things before that are now automatic to you. If somebody is learning something related to deep learning and they're three years in their journey, they likely will be learning Something that might be a little bit uh, different from what a person would be learning who's just starting out. That's uh, And it's also, to me, this basically states that you cannot hustle your way, your way through to success. You cannot just bring all your energy and go to, I don't know, to becoming a Kaggle Grandmaster in six months. Well, possibly you can. But only if you know how to go from point A to point B, from point B to point C, from point C to point D. So the value is in going through the points, through the learnings. That's where real re- progress happens. And uh, what, how leadership is, uh, what leadership is believed to be, especially probably more so in, in Western culture. Where it's uh, hey we will I don't know we will uh, hit that objective or setting goals increase revenue by thirty percent this is not what strategy is about it's all about uh, these techniques and things that really work so this was a mind opener to me
0: oh very interesting I'll definitely have to read out uh, read that section in the book it uh, sounds like a really fascinating concept and when you think about it it obviously does make sense but like you said the It's in the culture. It's not, or that's not, in fact, not in the culture.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yes. And you will have uh, CEOs of big companies actually understanding leadership to be setting these objectives that don't lie uh, within reach of the organization. So this creates a very interesting dynamic where you need, if you yourself in your life or your organization, if you want to effectively move forward. You need to have somebody who is able to map out point A, point B, point C. And not saying, hey, guys, let's go to the moon because uh, this is also very interesting because apparently when Kennedy was uh, giving his speech, this going to the moon, it didn't seem like a moonshot. Obviously, there were very hard engineering challenges to be solved. But we knew back then that we had the understanding and the United States they had the uh, capability to do this. So it was more of as creating an uh, attractor, a beacon to channel the resources towards. But it was not like we wake up one day and, uh,
0: hey guys, we will invent immortality or whatnot. Interesting. That's, I'll definitely have to check that out. <laughs> and lastly, to close out, what important truth do very few people agree with you on?
1: So I think that you cannot just assume that if you have an algorithm that is uh, unbiased and you know if you train it on biased data or unbiased data or whatnot, but you cannot just uh, wash your hands from deploying it in the world. And because because the math is unbiased, regardless what results it brings, we are good. I think that this is uh, very incorrect, and I think that many people will disagree with me on this one. But I feel about this very strongly if you are a, a researcher if you are a company and your algorithm brings some results in the world then you take both well the moral responsibility for sure and maybe in a in a change world or also a legal responsibility this is essentially how it is with large corporations where let's say a corporation tells you oh look i'm producing these telephones to connect people and they are so uh, cheap everyone is happier uh, but at the same time they are dumping pollution in the water and we know for a fact this is how corporations operate because this is cutting costs and uh, essentially a negative uh, impact on the societies and externality and uh, whether a company is dumping sewage in the water or it's dumping sewage in the minds of people it's a similar effect so if your recommender system gives free advertisement to things like Flutter Society or anti-vaxxers, and then people don't want to get vaccinated because uh, of some stuff that gets shared and that receives free advertisement from from your recommender system, then I'm all for freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. And uh, this seems like a very straight, uh, very straightforward case for me of uh, the... People behind the algorithm being responsible for how it's shaping the world.
0: Yeah, I, it's something that I think a lot of people in the field are waking up to just how impactful the the research has been and how much of our lives, like you said, the information that we we all consume, especially in the COVID era when you're all at home just looking at stuff online, it's all driven by by these algorithms. And uh, yeah, exactly. If you work in these, it's quite important to consider the ethics. And although it is an extremely hard problem, and I think a lot of people are conflating the difficulty of it with the value of it, Mm -hmm. which is, like you said, very unfortunate. And you should definitely go towards how difficult the problem is instead of just dismissing it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm a strong believer that in the end, the results speak very powerfully. And there's a lot of research around that. So we, the good intentions or the justification, it's just, it doesn't stand up to the test of, of reality. If we see that your recommender engine is having these results or that uh affecting the mental state of Facebook users where they're more depressed than they could have otherwise been, uh, then I don't think that explanation that this is the only cost-effective way of providing this service, uh, then that the, this is good enough. I don't want to live in such a society where I will be able to buy cheap uh, TV sets, but the, the the rivers will be polluted and everything will die, <laughs> essentially. We are ending on a positive note, you know? <laughs> How cheerful, Charlie. <laughs> Sorry, I should have been more optimistic. No, but as you said, there is a lot of research being done and I have... Uh, Full faith that in, in, in people that are good people that can look past their own their own profits. I'm, I'm hoping that a solution will be found to this problem as well because we badly need this. You know, very soon my kids will start uh, using YouTube, and I'm, right now I, I would be given what I know about the YouTube recommender system. I would be so super afraid about. The stuff that they can find there, especially that I know how vulnerable kids are the map of the world that I have in my head is through through education, through reading books, through talking to people, but kids they start as many regards as a blank slate so if the recommender system can convince an n b a star that the world is flat, which happened I'm not sure if you recall that, but that happened what can happen to a 13-year-old?
0: Yeah. And although, like you said, it is a dark message, it is a very important one. And so I don't necessarily think it's such a bad thing to end it on that. Anyway, Radek Osmilski, thank you for so much for joining me on the podcast. It was a really, really interesting to hear about your experience. Like you said, that was in many ways quite extraordinary of just being at a corporate job, deciding you didn't like it, and finding your, finding a passion in the field of, that we're all in machine learning and making your way through that non-traditional background and now working on something as cool as the Earth Species Project. So again, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Charlie, thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com.